Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Hope you're doing all right. We are, well, I'm here in Auckland, New Zealand, as per usual, in the midst of some kind of winter weather bomb situation. So it's freezing, it's blowing a gale, it's pouring with rain. Hail is kind of sweeping through from time to time. But uh, anyway, I'm inside, so I guess it's fine. Um, Hope you are fine and well, wherever you are. Uh, We are continuing our series on embodiment, which I've been calling In the Flesh. And today on the podcast, I'm interviewing Professor Shane Clifton. Uh, Shane is based in Sydney, so uh, through the miracles of the interwebs, I've managed to interview him uh, across the ocean. Shane was my first ever theology lecturer and has now become a, a friend and a colleague. And some years after I first sat in Shane's class, so I would have first studied, I think, in 2006 with Shane uh, when he was teaching me. I was still a young, budding fundamentalist, probably, in some respects, with some questions. And uh, and Shane was really instrumental in many respects in my own theological journey, uh, especially in some of those early years. Now, some, some years after I first experienced or met Shane and, and sat in his class, he had an accident at a church event that left him as a quadriplegic. And since that time, he's spent a lot of his time thinking and writing about theology from the perspective of disability. Uh, so that given we're in the series uh, called In the Flesh and we're exploring embodiment, I thought it'd be uh, really worthwhile to hear from him about his experience and his insights, both uh, in relation to his own journey and then how that's impacted on and shaped his academic and theological work as well. So we end up talking about his story, his owning of this idea of something called crip theology, We talk about some ways of reading the Bible, some reflections on what it means to flourish as a human being, about meaning, um, some conversations around embodiment and the body itself. So we cover a bunch of ground. We actually talked about much more in the conversation, but for the sake of the length of the episode, I've I've trimmed it back somewhat. So uh, sometimes the hard thing about editing this kind of stuff is you leave a lot of gold behind. But but I think you'll find uh, this conversation really insightful, uh, perhaps a bit challenging, but really important. So, this is episode 21 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So before we begin, a little bit about Shane. He's currently Honorary Professor at the Centre for Disability Research and Policy, the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Sydney. His current research is exploring the intersection between disability studies, virtue, ethics and theology. Maybe that'll make a bit more sense as we go along. Now, Shane actually started out as an accountant, uh, studying economics uh, and working in accountancy before making the big transition as a young Pentecostal man into the world of theological study. So both him and I uh, were young, enthusiastic Pentecostals some years ago. Uh, but then Shane felt called into Christian ministry of some kind. Uh, inst- and instead of going into full-time church ministry, he ended up staying in the academic world, completing his doctorate, and has gone on to publish research and work as a theologian. And as I mentioned at the start, in 2010, Shane had an accident that irreversibly changed the course of his life. So I wanted to start by asking him about this. I was, um, this is a good advice for young youth leaders. I was uh, down at a, on holidays and uh, at the local church in Nara had set up a, uh, an activity for the young people, which was a um, bicycle and skateboard jump into a homemade foam pit 
which turns out was built badly. So my children were using this jump and I decided to join them. And uh, as, you know, took one jump on a push bike, landed obviously badly and knew immediately I'd broken my neck. I couldn't move a thing. I had my head buried in this foam pit. And uh, so um, was sent by helicopter to um, Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney where uh, scans revealed I'd broken my fourth and fifth vertebrae. And uh, so that left me a uh, C5 quadriplegic. I spent seven months in hospital and uh, the next five years trying to reimagine life. And it's now 2019, so coming on nine years since I had that uh, accident. Uh, you write about it or wrote about it um, in your journal, which you then published. Um, that was that was also contributed to by your partner, Ali. Yeah, um, husbands should not break. Husbands should not book break. If anyone's interested, yes, yes, a little little shout out for husbands should not break, <laughs> um, which is a you know I think a an on, a very honest reflection on that experience and. You talk a little bit through there about your sort of the questions that come up for you in relation to God and faith and um, some of what kind of unfolds there. As someone who's already in some ways pulled a bunch of stuff apart and going through your study and going through postgraduate study and going through your PhD, um, were there still particular things that were being unraveled and um, theological paradigms or thinking about God that got confronted during that experience and, and afterwards? Yeah, it's a really good question because for a little while, I think I would have said no. You know, I I completed a PhD, I'd written books on theology, I'd taught for a, you know a decade since then, and um, and so I was pretty convinced for a long while afterward that my theology didn't change by this experience. But the longer I've got on, the more I realised that. Um, that actually my worldview and hence my theology um, did get affected and quite considerably actually by that experience. By the way, I think that theology that doesn't take experience and your own journey and your own insights into account is pretty poor yeah. theology. Um, so, and look, you know, in what ways? Well, I mean, I think um, one of the obvious ways is that I dealt with a lot more doubt than I had prior to the injury. Mm. Uh, so I really had to wrestle. I mean, this was a weird experience. Here I was, um, a theologian, and, um, you know, you, you start with the basic theological question, you know, the problem of pain, why God um, have you caused me to break my neck? So you're dealing with providence. And, and sure, there's theological answers to these questions, but, um, but actually, when they're just theory, then it's easy to come up with trite answers sure. uh, when you've got to wrestle with them yourself. And the truth is that um, they reached a time where, you know, the whole question, um, why uh, God translates into where are you, God, and then translates into do you exist at all. Yeah. And uh, so I, I went through a period there where, um, where I wasn't sure about the existence of God um, wasn't sure about many of the categories of belief that I was still teaching in a theological college. Of course. Um, <laughs> there's a slight <laughs> contradiction wandering through those times. Of course, in my view, any good theologian will go through those periods of doubt, and that shouldn't 
undermine their capacity to teach. In, in my view, it should make it deeper. You can still teach Orthodox Christian tradition because you're teaching a tradition yeah. while um, having to work out how you appropriate that for yourself. So, um, so I, I experienced a lot of doubt, and then I reclaimed that doubt um, by, you know, um, oh, sorry, reclaimed faith in the context of that. Um, you know, I think reimagining beauty or or emphasizing the importance of beauties become very important to mm. me. And look, I have I was always a bit left, but I think I'm much more liberal in my views post the injury than pre the injury in that um you know, I find God in more places than maybe I did before. Um I'm more open to the absence of God than maybe I was before. Uh, the ambiguity of our Christianity and our faith, the need to hold it both loosely and um, and yet somehow still find it meaningful and real. So I'm not sure I'm explaining that very well, but strangely, as I've held my faith a little looser, I also feel it's somehow richer, but, mm. but maybe uh, maybe the person who I was in 1995, if they were to see me now, might be horrified. But there you go. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty convinced that if if 22 year old me met me now, they'd be very horrified. <laughs> I'm mean, concerned for my uh, my uh, eternal future. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, you know, I've also be, I be, I've become more intolerant of certain faith positions that I think are really destructive to. Um, people who are vulnerable and suffering and sick and disabled. So it's also, uh, you know, one of the really rich, one of the richest parts of my theological journey has been exploring disability and its meanings. Mm. And, um, you know, that that really has helped me rethink what it means to be human. Um, it's become uh, a lens that has enabled me to reread the scriptural text both positively and negatively. So, so disability itself... Um, has yeah really transformed the way I think about theology. Mm. Let's um, talk about that a bit then. I think you have at times. I'm not sure how fiercely you own uh, the title, but you've you've referred to yourself as a as a crip theologian. I think you used that yeah title in relation to yourself. Can you unpack that a little bit? What what. Yeah, this is, I, I guess it's a reference to, you know, you might hear sometimes disability theology. I think crip theology takes disability theology further. It's um, crip theory or is a, um, it, I guess it's a form of feminism or it, or it draws on feminism or queer theory. It takes this word of derision and turns it into a word of power. Our feminists do that. Uh, you might have heard of, uh, you know, uh, of the term slut. Feminists have re uh, sort of owned this word of derision, and gays did it with the word queer. Um, so crip theory takes this word of derision, crippled, and owns it um, as an identifying mark. And crip theory, um, we, we tend to think of disability as, you know, impairment and loss. Um, whereas the disability rights movement reframed the way in which we think about disability. Once disability was a medical problem and suddenly we realised, no, actually disability is a social, um, a social cultural problem. I'm, I'm not disabled um, because my legs don't work. I'm disabled because there's stairs 
preventing me from getting into all of your buildings right. or I'm dis- I'm not disabled because I can't hear. I'm disabled because you're not providing sign translation services to enable us to communicate. Um, so this rethinking of theology then um, or, the, or the rethinking of the nature of disability has theological consequences and it also um, – because – it becomes instead of the solution to the problem of disability is not to fix the disabled person. I mean, you can't easily fix quadriplegia or mm. deafness, or um, but to change the society in which we live, and um, you know, so that so that involves um, challenging the social structures that have refused to provide access. Um, to buildings and, um, you know, it's the early disabled theorists would go and tie themselves to buses, for example, and to say, here we are, we can't get from our home to the city because none of your buses or trains are accessible. And uh, so there's this really sort of potent um, rights movement that uh, that I was just so um, proud to, um, to sort of suddenly be a part of because mm. I could look back on what they'd done on the extent to which they changed society and then see that actually society's got a long way to go and I can sort of join this history and be proud of this history and um, and part of it when it comes to theology then is um, it is it involves ideological ideological critique because you might ask a tradition what is it about that tradition that has you know um, kept disabled people in their place on the margins outside of the mainstream. And so it involves some ideological critique of Christian tradition in general, but also even of the scriptures, just as feminism might um, engage in some important ideological critique of the biblical text or lesbian and gay theorists might also critique um, the text. So does crip theory do some of that and then re-own uh, some or rethink or reimagine readings of biblical text. So it's it it involves crypt theory, involves critique, but it also involves building up and new expressions of power. And so I don't think it's an entirely destructive or negative theology. In fact, I think it's a very empowering theology mm. for contemplating um, the way in which the gospel brings people from the margins and re-empowers them, embraces them, welcomes them in the centre. So, yeah, that's um, crypt theology. I would imagine that the sense of it being destructive, like in many of these areas that you're talking about, often feels destructive to those for whom the current system has been built with their advantage in mind. and in some sense. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. Look, theology, um, whether it's, you know, on behalf of the poor, so whether it's, um, you know, whether it's on behalf of women, whether it's on behalf of lesbians and gays, or um, it's always challenging those in power, which in the church has been mostly white men um, and wealthy well-educated white men. So Pentecostalism itself is something of a protest movement. Um, certainly it was a protest to those wealthy white men and it um, replaced the, put the power structures of the church, or at least it tried to, mm. in the hands of African-Americans and women and Indigenous Australians and people without an education. Um, so those things challenge the power structures that be. And uh, certainly um, crypt theory does that. The, the other thing it 
you know, we talk about all of these topics as though they're individual topics, but but you know, when, when we're talking about um, disability inclusion, or if we're talking about um, LGBTQI inclusion in the church, it's not just one topic because these topics do ask hard questions about other aspects of our faith. Um, and probably the one that's most challenging for conservatives is that it it um, asks us to reimagine our hermeneutics mm. because um, we really do have very simple and naive understandings of the biblical text. We uh, tend to treat them as being written by God full stop. We don't recognize the humanity in the text. And uh, so these new ways of thinking do ask us to, uh, to, you know, challenge traditional readings, even be prepared to disagree with the scriptures. So there's hermeneutical issues there that I can understand are confronting for people. Mm. Um, very liberating once you explore them. Again, they don't have to destroy faith. I think these sort of questions make faith possible. Uh, you know, it's, I think in... The, so the a couple of things I just wanted to point out at this stage. One is that Shane uses the term hermeneutics here and also something called ideological critique. And both of those are really all about how we go approaching and interpreting text. And in the Christian tradition in particular, this is particularly concerned with how we approach and interpret the Bible, which, as you know, is the sacred text of Christian faith. Uh, and so Shane goes on to explain a little bit more of what ideological critique of the Bible might look like from the perspective of disability. Yeah, well, look, if I let me start with just some ideological critique. Um, and, you know, I mean, the obvious place to start there is that the Bible has some problematic references to disability. There's some obvious passages in Leviticus, for example, where people with disabilities, very similar to my own, go and read Leviticus 21 mm. um, later on and, you know, aren't allowed to be priests. And in a sense, that shouldn't surprise us. Ancient society has, you know, pretty negative attitudes to disability and they're reflected in the scriptural texts. Disability was often judged as a consequence of a person's sin. So you'll see that if you're, you know, if you're righteous, you'll do well. If you're a sinner, you'll do badly. And mm. some of those ideas are reflected in the text. But to do the scripture justice as well, the scripture itself critiques and challenges those ideas. So, so the great thing about um, biblical study here is you can join the conversation mm. between the texts about, you know, questions of of the whole, you know, does righteousness result always in flourishing and blessing? Um and does unrighteousness always result in curses? And, you know, those ideas come into modern Pentecostalism in the prosperity gospel, don't they? So they've still got some currency there, those ideas. Um, some other areas in which you might do some ideological critique is on healing. Um, and I, you and I both come from a Pentecostal tradition where healing is really central to that. Um, you know, it's sort of seen as one of the four foundations of the Pentecostal full gospel. Um, and, you know, healing is a problem when you've got a permanent disability. Um, I've had so much prayer for healing over the years. And um, look, I, I don't want to sort of dismiss that prayer as being awful. People prayed, have prayed for me because they love me and they want the best for me. And they, so, and I receive it as such. Um, but the danger becomes, it's, uh, you know, I can still remember going to my first 
Pentecostal National Conference of my denomination after having the injury and I get there and they've got their big American faith preacher um, there at night who comes and does a message of healing. And, you know, if you believe in God, you'll be healed. And here I am sitting on the fifth row in a wheelchair, Mm. the elephant in the room. Um, And so, you know, Pentecostals um, in their theology of healing really haven't thought through um, a theology of suffering. But the challenge becomes, of course, that ideological critique might even lead you to question, or or what do we do with Jesus um, in the Gospels? Because Jesus is, now on the one hand, Jesus is pretty extraordinary in his time as being someone who holds disability front and center. The Gospels have disability as important in a way that many other texts and many other sort of power structures in the day didn't. Um, But nevertheless, the, the Gospels... You know, the the disabled people in the Gospels are never named. They're always sort of marginal objects of study. Um, and Jesus' typical response to disability is to heal it. Um, so does that mean, and what Pentecostals have done with that, is to say that, um, you know, well, the Gospel, therefore, this is Jesus, therefore we should be healed. One of my closest friends today um, still holds to that and preaches on that. Uh, it's extremely distressing. So mm. we need mm. more nuanced readings of the gospel. We need to think through what Jesus' healings were about, the extent to which actually um, they're as much about social transformation as they are about physical healing. And um, so, you know, there's there's hard questions. And some really great disabled thinkers um, and disabled New Testament exegetes have worked on these texts, mm. done a much better job than I could. So... So there's just some areas of ideological critique. In relation to that, your most recent academic work, I think published last year, um, called Crippled Grace, Disability, Virtue Ethics and the Good Life. Um, In this context then, what, what do you mean by the good life? How would you describe the good life? How do you? When I went through my accident, I, you know, you, you spend seven months in hospital, you're just desperate to get home and then you get home and your losses just hit you in the face. Mm. You know, it has, it's not just that you, you know, people say you're wheelchair bound, but I, my wheelchair is my liberation. The problem's not the wheelchair. The problem is, you know, the impact on your marriage, uh, your sex life. I mean, you can reclaim that, but, um, you, you know, how do you give and take in a marriage where it feels like one person's always giving or the impact on mm. your parenting or the loss of your capacity to play sports or, by the way, these are things we all experience as we age to one degree or another. So it's not as though quadriplegia is unique here. Mm. Um, so I had to sort of, you know, how could I reclaim happiness when I was desperately unhappy? And I, um, in addition to the scriptures, I spent uh, the bulk of my reading with the virtue tradition. In fact, um, when, I was, when I was, I teach ethics as, you know, and when I had my accident, I was reading Alistair McIntyre's Dependent Rational Animals, which is his attempt to understand the impact of virtue ethics for disability. And I'm halfway through that book and I have a disabling injury. Right. So wow. um, make out of that what you will, whether that's divine providence at work or God with an obscene sense of humor, I don't know, Uh, maybe both. Um, But I took up the virtue tradition really as a way of processing my loss. So 
the virtue tradition has its origins in Aristotle and it gets taken up in the Christian church a little bit by Augustine, um, especially by Thomas Aquinas and uh, Catholic ethics since Aquinas. And it turns out that the virtue tradition isn't just about ethics, but it's a, it's a study of happiness and it re-envisages what happiness is. We think of happiness generally in terms of sort of short-term emotion, but um, the virtue tradition examines happiness in terms of meaning and living well, um, which you're able to do by virtue. So, um, so for me, what what it means to flourish with a disability means to um, it means not the absence of the disability or the or hardship or crisis, but it means to experience meaning in the midst of crisis. Um, so it's to live for some sort of purpose and meaning. And um, and look for all of us when we think about you know what's meaning. Um, well, meaning. I think for humanity is framed by story, isn't it? Um, so what's the story of my life? And can I envisage a meaningful story in and through quadriplegia? And um, and the answer to that surprisingly is yes. Right. And I wasn't sure about that early mm, on. Mm. Um, you know, one of the interesting questions I get asked is, if you had your time again, would you have your accident again? And once upon a time, I would have said, oh, I, if I could go back in time to the 6th of October, there's no way I'm going to that church facility the next day. Yeah. Um, if you would ask me now, I'd still say the same thing, but I'd have to hesitate for a bit longer than I once would. Right. Because I think my life has been enriched in ways that wouldn't have occurred without the injury. Mm. Um, and my story, I think, is more meaningful as a consequence. So it's it's the experience of the generosity to me. Um, virtue is most evidence, not in good times, but in crisis, isn't it? Um, you know, courage, faithfulness, generosity, um, compassion, mercy, all of these wonderful character traits come out in all of our various life crises. And uh, so, um, so for me, to flourish is to be able to get to the end of a life and say, um, I can see some meaning to that story. Um, now, look, if I just lived that as an individual, I still think it probably wouldn't be meaningful. So individual stories get caught up in larger mm. stories. Um, and so, you know, I think other stories have helped inform my own story, including, of course, the gospel ends up being a story, doesn't it? Yeah. So how does the Christian story and how does my embracing of that Christian story um, add meaning to my life, help me be a part of a story of meaning and live with purpose. Um, so, so yeah, that would be my notion of flourishing. Uh, I think, by the way, not just the Christian story adds meaning. I think you can find meaning in other religious stories. I know that's controversial to people. Um, I've found meaning in the disability community, in mm. disability rights. There's multiple levers, level, uh, levels and layers of, uh, of meaning. Um, so, I, weirdly, I'm, I think I'm flourishing in the midst of all of the challenges mm. that I still live with. Mm. Um, with this disability. And thinking about embodiment more generally, I think there's a real, you know, I've been talking in the, in the podcast recently about 
the fact that within the Christian tradition that I spent, you know, the, the form of Christianity that I spent a lot of my earlier life in had this very complicated, um, had a very complicated relationship with the body. The body in some way was this thing you could praise God with, I suppose, yeah. um, with these kind of quite extroverted displays of Pentecostal um, vitality. Uh, and then at the same time, these very negative attitudes towards the body as the sinful flesh, uh, the yeah. body as the location of, of all of kinds of evil, the body as this thing to struggle against and to fight, uh, and sex and sexuality then becomes a part of that story and, you know, the, the, the sort of the young men trudging up the front on yet another sort of prayer time to get their, you know, masturbatory tendencies ex- uh, yeah. expunged from them or, or whatever yeah. it might be, you know. Uh this very kind of murky, complicated relationship with the body. And so there's this movement, I think, to try and reclaim, amongst some, and certainly I'm interested in it, to, to try and reclaim a, a sense of positivity towards one's own embodiment and actually maybe yeah. bodies aren't this um, enemy that we fight against but are, but, are, but are a part of, where in fact make us who we are. Yeah, well, um, we yeah. are our body. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah, um, exactly. Whatever our brain and our mind and our soul is, um, it is absolutely um, connected or or you can't separate it from what it is to be bodies. So. Essentially, I think, you know, our, our evolution of consciousness, right, has complicated that reality for us because we've, we've sort of become aware of our bodies in a way that other creatures probably aren't. Um, yeah, and when that consciousness emerged, we didn't know enough about our own selves to realise that, that that it was also a, pro- a process of brain development. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, without um, without the brain, you don't have consciousness. That's right. So, and so consciousness it, itself is a physical embodied reality that's that's being yeah. generated through physical chemical reactions and neural impulses. And, um and thinking it's, about it's sort so of obvious, it's amazing that this is something that's <laughs> controversial, isn't it? But anyway, <laughs> yes, there's a few things I find uh, reflecting on in that way. By the um, way, just to come back to one of the things you said there, part of this I think is also requires us to to do embodied theology. We need to rethink the notion of sin. Hmm. Um, you know, the notion of sin. Um, as somehow our bodies are a problem, so we've got to constrain them. Or even the notion of sin as, um, you know, there's these rules that are written in the Bible and what is sinful is to disobey what's written in the Bible. Just really shallow and poor and in that case really acontextual notions of what sin Mm. is. So I think we need to reimagine sin as harm. And so if we say to ourselves, we are embodied, let's embrace the goodness of our bodies. Let's celebrate the passions. Let's enjoy these bodies. Um, you know, if we if we thought of our body as this is who we are, this is a gift from God itself, we would enjoy them much more. Mm. There wouldn't be any question about, I mean, masturbation, as someone who's lost the capacity to orgasm, my God, just people masturbate often, enjoy your bodies because, you know, you're going to die one day or you might have a spinal cord injury or you might get prostate cancer and will no longer be able to do that activity. That's just so bloody fun. So, um, and and we wouldn't have a problem with the body if we had a different notion of sin mm. uh, as, you know, we, we reimagine sin in terms of harm. And I think, by the way, this enables us to rethink 
our acceptance of LGBT people. I know this is a huge tangent, but that this is, <laughs> you know, LGBT inclusion is about embodiedness. Mm. What is it to be a person who lives uh, in bodies and brains in which um, homosexual identity is fundamentally tied into who they are as a person. And, all right, what does it mean for that person to sin or for us to sin? Um, Well, it's to try and pretend that you're not this thing that you are. Mm. And, um, you know, and actually the sin becomes when we try and make this person disembodied and deny their bodies and, you know, live celibate or live in a, heterosexual relationship that's sure to be in contradiction to their embodied existence. Mm. So, you know, the harm actually, the weird thing about that topic is because we don't accept embodiedness and we've got weird notions of sin, um, really it's the church that's sinning against LGBTQ Mm. people, not LGBTQ people in relationships who are the sinners because they're not in harm if they're in a consensual relationship. So this is a tangent, I know, but all of these things are so related. They're all connected. I think I think that's, for anyone who's been through any kind of journey of whether you call it deconstruction or whether you just call it pulling things apart and, you know, as, as I've been doing this podcast, talking about things like hell or talking about things like, um, you know, why did Jesus die? What you find is inevitably all of these things are connected to everything else. And so you start examining one thing and saying, maybe there's something different going on here. Then suddenly you realize you're talking about everything, which is perhaps why it's so threatening for conservative establishments to have these conversations because they know that that's the case. They know that everything's interconnected and, and, and why it can be not just threatening to establishments, but I think it can be... um, Look, it's personally unsettling. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my experience is that people who go through these processes generally do reclaim and reimagine faith. Sometimes they, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. they give up faith altogether. But in the long run, it's better to be authentic and true, and to and to pursue truth wherever it takes you than to live with an um, to live without questioning, without examining, mm. um, or to live with a lie, which is where a lot of uh, Christians uh, end up, in my opinion, mm. whether that's healing or whether that's in any number of topics. Is there any of your particular work that you would want to direct people towards if they want to read something of yours? We've mentioned your memoir, mentioned Crippled Grace. Yeah, look, I mean, those are my two main books. If you're an academic and interested in scholarship, you can jump on my um, website shaneclifton.com and have a look at some publications I've got. Um, read what interests you. If you if you want if you macabre and want to have a look at my accident, you can <laughs> type Shane Clifton into YouTube. And oh no! You'll even be able to see a sort of a short video. We were recording my accident at the oh, time. So okay. There you go. It depends where your curiosity runs. <laughs> look, I'm really proud of Crippled Grace. Mm. Um, it's a book that is the product of nine years of thinking for me. And, um, and I, yeah, I mean, a few years, you know, it's a little while down the track now, would I rewrite it? Maybe there'd be things I'd add, but, um, yeah, if you want to understand something of my current thinking, um, you want to learn something about disability and vulnerability and virtue, then, uh, that's where I direct people. Okay. So that's it. That's my interview with Shane. That's where we kind of wrapped up. 
I'm really grateful for uh, him taking the time to talk with me about some of this and I hope you found that conversation interesting and provocative and challenging and insightful because I know that I did. Uh, as he mentioned, you can go to shaneclifton.com if you want to look up his publications, but you can also check out his blog there and some other things that are going on. So please do have a look at that. In the meantime, that's it for this episode of In The Shift. Thanks again to Rhys Michelle for enhancing the audio experience, massaging the tonal qualities of this recording. I'll be back in the next episode of In The Shift.